Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, entitled The Christian Roots of Science, from the series The Great Reversal, How Christians Will Change the Future. Listen to the full series now on Canon Plus. Oh, good day. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me to this conference. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to, to come back after two years where I had a good time at, this, at an American Vision Conference. Now, I probably have to say I've come further than uh, most of you guys. This is where I come from. And I have uh, a doctorate in physical chemistry. This is what I, I did my thesis in, the selenium ring and cage molecules shining laser light on them and analyzing the spectrum uh, to say, say how they are bonded together. Um, my laser took up a whole desk and could change colors, not like this little thing here, mind you. Um, I do a bit of this as well, playing chess from time to time. I sort of did that a couple of nights ago uh, on a smaller scale. This is the sort of thing I did at a conference a few years ago in Australia, and uh, I've played more serious sorts of games, like with Barry Spassky a number of years ago now, who played with Bobby Fischer, you might remember. Um, Now, of course, uh, this year is the bicentennial of the birth of this man, Charles Darwin, who has probably done more than almost any man in history to undermine trust in God's word, the Bible. There are far better anniversaries that could be celebrated, like the 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth, a much better one. Uh, but uh, the, the world is by and large celebrating Darwin, and usually it's the atheists and human, humanist groups who are doing it, and that's because Darwin was trying to explain life without God. Hence we have this uh, website, creation.com. It's a fairly easy one to remember, hopefully. And it has almost 7,000 articles on all sorts of issues regarding trusting the Bible, the creation, dinosaurs, the floods, the deity of Christ, um, fossil record, design in nature. And, and uh, we also have a homeschool corner, which we recently put up with, uh, with lots of, uh, of articles on the issue of homeschooling. So that's a new uh, development on our web uh, the homeschool corner, and it's updated every, every, every uh, day. Like you've got the swine flu hype. Remember the swine flu hype? Yeah, it is hype, and of course the evolutionists say there's evolution in action when it's nothing of the the sort, as I'll be talking about the next uh, uh, session, it's a variation within a kind, and also next uh, I'll be talking about um, the design and nature a bit, and how human designers are copying the creator's designs. Like the cuttlefish has inspired uh, very efficient TV screens, modeled on the way the cuttlefish changes color. And it uses only 1% of a normal TV screen. And uh, you may have heard of the uh, birds evolving from, uh, from dinosaurs, so you better order KFD instead of KFC, if that's true. Um, but it looks like the way they walk, their, their thigh bone is fixed in place, more or less, and they walk from the knee down because the thigh is used to hold up their air sacs, which is important for the special way birds breathe, and dinosaurs don't have that. So it means that dinosaurs couldn't have evolved um, uh, into birds. And we've got this uh, free email, email newsletter coming out, which is all about um, explaining what's on the site, what uh, speakers are in your area. And this is the email newsletter, and it's your chance for you guys to sign up. There'll be some clipboards going around to give you a chance, a free newsletter. There's no um, uh, spamming. We won't give your address to a third party, so have a chance to sign up for the, uh, for the newsletter here. 
And also, while you're doing that, I just explained my name is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew for Frenchman. And if I had more time, I'd tell you some Jewish and French jokes and get away with it too. Uh, I can do that. Uh, but what I'm here for, really, is a pretty serious thing. The, the Apostle Peter told us to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. We are supposed to give reasons for the faith. And uh, Jesus told us that the greatest command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and all your mind and all your strength. And we mustn't forget the mind part. And I guess since you're, you're all at this conference, you're not forgetting the mind part. And to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the problem is, I mean, people getting all these questions about, it often comes to, to the issue of science, where science and Christianity are supposed to be all at uh, loggerheads. But what I'm trying to show you this time is that science grew out of the Christian faith. And I'm going to explain uh, a bit about why this is. And the thing is, what do we need for science to work? And how has this historically been developed? And then I'm going to talk about some of the common myths about science and Christianity, which are in most of the textbooks in the public schools and in the news media. So, for instance, what do we need for science to work? Well, for one thing, we have to understand that the universe is real. And I'm going to show you that all these propositions required for science are found in the Bible. They're not found in evolutionary theory or in any other non-Christian belief system. Now, uh, the universe is real. That seems pretty obvious, but think about the the, um, Eastern mysticisms. The the Eastern religions basically believe the universe is an illusion. And, of course, if someone says everything is an illusion, you should ask them, well, is that statement an illusion too? You see how they refute themselves. But we know the universe is, is real because the Bible tells us that God created it, so it's clearly real. The other thing uh, for science to work is that the universe is orderly. Now, why should we expect the universe to be orderly? That's an interesting point, isn't it? Because if Zeus and his gang were in charge, why would you expect anything orderly to come out of that? Or if the universe is just one big thought, it could change its mind at any moment. Uh, But the thing is, um, the Bible tells us that God is not the author of confusion, but a God of order. So this belief that God is a a law-making God... Uh, was very important to, uh, to, to have the whole idea of science, finding natural laws, finding an underlying uh, regularity, the way that God upholds his creation by the word of his power. And this is what inspired uh, the early scientists to find what they called natural laws, which are really our descriptions of the way God upholds things in a normal, regular, repeatable way. And then the point is that man may investigate the universe, and that comes from a dominion mandate. That God gave man dominion over creation. This dominion mandate has not been revoked. Um, And this uh, can contrast with some of the pagan views where, I mean, to cut down a tree, you have to pray to the tree god or or, um, get some water, you'd have to pray to the river god or whatever. But no, we we have the right to investigate creation. We can uh, do experiments on water because uh, God is the one who made all of us and delegated authority to man to to do this. Now, let's uh, look at some of the... uh, how. Now, science grew up because of these beliefs, and science was still born in many cultures like uh, ancient Greece and China. Certainly, they developed technology, but without this idea of an orderly lawmaker, they had no way of developing true science. And here's some interesting um, a new uh, a book by uh, Rodney Stark, who's not necessarily a, a Christian as far as I know. <laughs> 
Uh, but he says it wasn't the wisdom of the East that gave rise to science, nor did Zen meditation turn people's hearts against slavery. No, science was not the work of Western secularists or even deers. It was entirely the work of devout believers and an active, conscious creator God. Now, you won't hear this in the school system, will you? But this is it's pretty irrefutable history. And there's a new book called God's Philosophers by James Hannam, who has just recently got his PhD in history of science from Cambridge University in the UK. And he knows what he's talking about. And he... Um, points out um, the Catholic Church can support a great deal of science in the Middle Ages and also restricted some of the wild speculation. And the church never supported the idea the earth was flat, and I'll be discussing that later, never banned human dissection, never banned zero, and certainly never burnt anyone at the stake for scientific ideas. So this is a man, a man who's a, a historian of science. And uh, he goes on to say things... Um, uh, like uh, the Middle Ages were a period of enormous advances in science, technology, and culture. Compass, paper, printing, and stirrups all appeared in Western Europe between AD 500 and AD 1500. Now, uh, at one time, people would call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages. But clearly, this is just not true. It was a period of, of huge advances, as we see here. And it's easy enough to, to think about it. Look at the medieval cathedrals uh, and the enormous advances in architecture, like the flying buttress, and look at the, art, the artwork there, the stained glass windows. It was a period of great advances because of a, a general sort of Christian worldview. And uh, saying that free printing had an even greater effect than gunpowder, which, like the stirrup before, it revolutionized warfare and allowed Europeans to dominate the rest of the world. I mean, uh, it's politically uh, correct to talk about how bad Europeans are because of their, their conquering nature and imperialism, but then you have to ask, well, how could they have been in a position to be conquerors? It's because of their huge advances in science. Now, they may well have been misused, but the fact that they had these advances, and the question is, how did they get these advances? And this is, again, because of a general Christian worldview that permeated Europe and didn't permeate China or, or Greece or, or the... Um, or the Eastern general. And again, they invented spectacles, a mechanical clock, the windmill and blast furnace. This is the so-called Dark Ages. Um, spectacles, that's a, a type of lens. Camera, almost all kinds of machinery, and the Industrial Revolution itself owes the origin to forgotten inventors of the Middle Ages. And that's something you won't hear very often, is it? That the Middle Ages were periods of great advances. But uh, go a bit further than this, I'm talking here, so far it's basically mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis would put it. Um, but when the world got, the, the European decided to adopt the Bible more thoroughly, uh, there was a, an even greater leap forward. So first of all, you have quite an advance because of general Christianity, but when the biblical view was, was really um, uh, uh, um, thought of in the, during the Reformation, that was an even bigger advance. And there's a, an Australian historian who is now a professor of history at Oxford. He's written a book called The Bible, Protestantism, and the Rise of Natural Science. And it's also not only the rediscovery of the authority of Scripture, but also a, a pretty plain meaning of Scripture. 
as he says here, it's commonly supposed in the early medieval period, modern period, individuals began to look at the world in a different way. They could no longer believe what they read in the Bible. That's the usual story you see in the textbooks. But he says the reverse is true, that when people began to read the Bible in a different way, they were forced to jettison um, traditional conceptions of the world. See, for a long time, they were still held back by some of the ancient uh, Greek ideas, the Aristotelian ideas. I mean, the Roman church took upon a lot of Aristotelian ideas. And that, now, while they made advances, this uh, clinging to the Greek philosophers did hold them back. So he's saying that when they adopted the Bible as real authority, abandoned some of the church traditions, then science took a, a great leap forward. And uh, he goes on to say... Had it not been for the rise of a literal interpretation of the Bible and subsequent appropriation of biblical narratives by early modern scientists, modern science may not have arisen at all. In sum, the Bible and its literal interpretation have played a vital role in the development of Western science. And this is pretty interesting when, when creationists uh, who believe uh, a plain meaning of Genesis are, are accused of retarding science, and yet this professor, who I don't believe is a Christian, uh, says that in fact this literal belief in, in Genesis and the rest of the Bible that led to the development of science. So you see how much unlearning there has to be done uh, uh, from people who have gone through the public um, miseducation system to actually get the truth. And another professor, so not just Peter Harrison, who's a professor, an Australian who's at Oxford University, he's a Canadian professor of history, and he says, to clarify the term literal interpretation, by the way, he says, recent work on early modern science has directed a direct and demonstrated a positive relationship between the resurgence of Hebraic literal exegesis of the Bible and the Protestant Reformation and the rise of the empirical method in modern science. And he doesn't mean wooden literalism, but the sophisticated historical literal hermeneutics that Martin Luther and basically the other reformers championed. So, I mean, okay, when I, when I say literal, it should really be plain, or I'd say following the, um, the law debate, I call it textualist or originalist. What did the original author intend by what he said? So we interpret scripture um, in the terms of historical narrative, we interpret historically. Poetry, we interpret poetically. Parables, we interpret parabolically. So it's not wooden literalism, but understanding Scripture according to its uh, historical and grammatical context is what he's talking about here. And he says this um, really led to the rise of modern empirical science. And he explains this. Uh, that when, uh, they, they, from the Bible, he says, when this method was transferred to science, students of nature moved from studying nature as symbols, allegories, and metaphors to, in, to observing nature directly in an inductive and empirical way that modern science was born. So you see, uh, the, the uh, proper reading of the Bible, taking the Bible as data and not imposing your own philosophical ideas and inventing weird and wonderful allegories, but taking the text as written... This carried over to science. Let's take nature as it is. Don't impose uh, Greek philosophical ideas. Um, that's the thing. To, to, for real science, to work out how something is, we have to find out by investigating it. And God is free to create however he pleases. So the only way we can find out is by investigating how he's done it and how he upholds things uh, today.
not by, uh, uh, by going to Aristotle and his uh, preconceived ideas. So this is another thing, isn't it, that the Bible and its plain meaning was vital for modern science to work. And the same approach to reading the Bible really had a good effect uh, with the same approach to science. Now, here's a secular guy who says the same sort of thing. Uh, Lauren Isley, he was a secular anthropologist, and he said that the philosophy of experimental science began with a sheer act of faith that the universe possessed order and could be interpreted by rational minds. And there are a lot of these sort of quotes from secular people you could multiply, but you won't get them in the public schools. And you won't find them in the newspaper. And uh, what, what next could he say? It's one of the curious paradoxes of history that science that professionally has little to do with faith owes its origin to an act of faith that the universe could be rationally interpreted. And science today is sustained by that assumption. Isn't it interesting that uh, these people are admitting science grew out of the Christian faith, but now is basically they've been um, cut off from their roots. Very serious problem there. Now let's get back to this um, issue of presuppositions required for science to work in the first place. I've gone through a few already, but I'm going to go through a, a couple more. And one is that our thoughts are rational. And this comes from the fact that God made man in his image. And the image has to be a, a spiritual image, that we're rational and moral beings. It can't be a physical image because God the Father hasn't got a body. So it must be the spiritual image. that so God is rational, Jesus is called the Logos, and therefore part of our image being made in the image is rational thinking. And uh, if you want to do it properly, your rational thinking should begin with the axioms or propositions of Scripture and deduced from there. Where rationality goes wrong is when you try to reason apart from the Bible. Now remember God told Isaiah, come let us reason together. You see, reasoning together, not reasoning apart from God's word. But then how does evolution account for rational thoughts? Because evolution, I mean, the um, Darwinian process only selects for survival value, not for truth. If we're rearranged pond scum, why should we even trust our own thoughts to be rational? So that's the thing to ask the skeptics. If, if their theory is true, their own skeptical thoughts should not be trusted. And this is what C.S. Lewis and others have pointed out. Uh, if the whole evolution of man was an accident, then our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproducts of the movement of atoms. And this holds for the thoughts of the materialists as well as anyone else. But if their thoughts um, of materialism are accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents. <laughs> so this is important for, for defending the faith is not only to show that the Christian faith is, is true, but also that any non-Christian belief system leads to self-contradiction. Uh, and this is one major self-contradiction for the atheistic Darwinian faith. And one last thing I want to mention, the last proposition, is honesty. Okay, again, if we're rearranged pond scum, why should we be honest in our reporting? And is it any wonder, um, for instance, uh, that science in, 
fraud and science is a big growth industry. And here's, a, a, again, a, a, a Jerry Bergman, who just spoke last time. He wrote a book, uh, an article in our Journal of Creation, which is available on, on our website, but, and also there's a chance to subscribe on our, our book tables, uh, Why the Epidemic of Fraud Exists in Science Today. An excellent uh, uh, article there. And he cites certain uh, secular scientists who say that uh, fraud is now a deeply rooted problem. That's pretty serious. And a dozen or so proven cases of falsification that have cropped up in the past five years have occurred in some of the world's most distinguished research institutions. Isn't that a terrible indictment that uh, fraud is such a big growth industry? And, of course, I'd say uh, one um, example of that would be the evolutionary uh, is, is a big fraud, and, and so is the global warmongering. And, but here's what the evolutionists say about it. Here, here's um, um, two evolutionists here. Jean-Ron Lanier is an evolutionist. He's a computer programmer. He says there are a lot of people uncomfortable with accepting evolution because it leads to what they perceive as a moral vacuum in which their best impulses have no basis in nature. And then Richard Dawkins, the leading atheopath, as I call them sometimes, um, <laughs> He, uh, or misotheist, that's another good term, because uh, I think that's what he really is. He hates God. Uh, he's written a book called The God Delusion, and he says, all I can say is that's just tough. We have to face up to the truth. So here is a leading evolutionist saying, if evolution is true, there's no real ultimate basis for right and wrong. So therefore, why should we uh, not commit fraud under their own belief system? But uh, let's go back to the origin of science again, because I mean the same. Uh, I've talked about Peter Harrison, who's a prof- an Australian, who's a professor of of, uh, of uh, history of science, and he wrote a recent book, which is actually called "The Fall of Man and the Foundations of Science." Now, as I said before, I mean when you have the Bible as your authority, God has said, uh, "You shall not bear false witness." So that, that's uh, if you have a biblical worldview, you've got a very good reason not to commit fraud. But evolution, as I've shown you, there's no reason not to commit fraud because their own philosophy can't give you honesty as a value. I mean, maybe natural selection might select for some dishonest people. But this book by by Peter Harrison is all about how the fall of man, the belief in the fall of man, was a vital part of the rise of modern science. So I've shown you, first of all, that the Christian faith in general was very important, this idea of a law-making God. Then the Protestant Reformation, the discovery of the plain interpretation of Scripture carried over into science. And now we see that the belief in the fall of man had a very important belief. And the fall of man is why we have fraud, basically. Because Adam sinned and brought death, and then death passed to all men, as, as Romans 5 tells us, and we've all sinned in Adam. So no wonder that is the ultimate explanation for fraud and science, because of the fall of man. But you see, this um, historian uh, says... Uh, because he, the, 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 these historians, um, the, the, the founders of modern science, rather, uh, believed in the fall of man, and therefore they thought, well, what would the pre-fall Adam have looked like? And, of course, the pre-fall Adam wouldn't have had the same limitations we do. And that's why they believe that Adam would have had incredible knowledge before the fall, before the, the, the fall wrecked his brain and everything else. 
And, he, and this guy says, uh, for many champions of a new learning in the 17th century, the encyclopedic knowledge of Adam was a benchmark against which their own aspirations were gauged. You see, Adam was looked after, which of course requires a belief in a literal Adam and a literal fall. So once again, the plain meaning of scripture was important for this rise of science. And this is uh, what he goes on to say, that Francis Bacon's project to reform philosophy was motivated by an attempt to determine whether the human mind might by any means be restored to its perfect and original condition, or if that may not be, yet reduced to a better condition than which it now is. So interesting how he um, accepted the fall of Adam as a literal thing and made sensible deductions from it. Now, that might be a bit like perfectionism here, but let's uh, look look on. Um, and uh, the, he says the experimental approach was deeply indebted to Augustinian views of the limitations of human knowledge in the wake of the fall, and thus inductive experimentalism, which is basically most of what science is today, can lay claim to a filial relationship with the tradition of Augustinianism. Now, that's something you won't hear too much of either. Uh, so, um, first of all, Adam had perfect knowledge, and see, people like Francis Bacon would say, uh, would say, well, can we get knowledge, how do we get up to this, sorry, wrong one, going backwards. It's a problem with uh, science, isn't it? <laughs> it's not infallible. Um, that, that see, Francis Bacon thought, well, f- uh, how do we get back, or at least approach Adam's pre fall knowledge? Well, one thing is the Christian faith it can sanctify us. I mean, I don't think we reach perfectionism is wrong, but certainly the sanctification that comes after justification, we might be able to sort of at least approach the pre-fall thing, and that, of course, complete sanctification waits till um, uh, the redeemed states in heaven, um, not on earth, but also that modern scientific investigation might approach some of the knowledge that he thought Adam would have had. So those two things... He, he believed would be the result of Adam's fall, you see, a literal belief leading to the rise of modern science, as well as the fact that we are limited. And therefore, any idea of trusting in human authority is, just doesn't make any sense. That's why we have the, the tradition that science doesn't, shouldn't require any human authority. It requires investigation, experiment. Let's see how the world really is. Because no human has infallible knowledge, uh, at least on this earth. Of course, Christ has infallible knowledge, but he's at the right hand of God, of God the Father. So I'm talking about humans on this earth. So all these um, beliefs from the fall uh, were important for the rise of science. But then let's uh, see what we have now. And here's a warning from, from uh, the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher. Very interesting. She gave an address to the uh, Scottish uh, General Church of Scotland General Assembly, and she said, if you try to take the fruits of Christianity without its roots, the fruits will wither. And they will not come again unless you nurture the roots. This is a very interesting thing, very profound uh, from a, uh, a prime minister. And again, she, uh, the warning, we must not profess the Christian faith and go to church because we want the social reforms and, and other benefits, but because we accept the sanctity of life, the responsibility that comes with freedom and the supreme sacrifice of Christ. Quite a good statement, that. And I believe very firmly that the reason for the epidemic of fraud and science is largely we have lost the Christian roots of science and actively campaigning to dissever the tree of science from the roots of Christianity that first nurtured. And, and as Margaret Thatcher said, we just can't do that. 
It's never going to produce fruit. And that's why we have science which is so badly misused uh, to abort babies. Um, Embryonic stem cells are another fraud in science. Adult stem cells work. Embryonic stem cells have yet to produce a single cure. Um, so uh, the, the science as a tool can be terribly misused, but originally it was meant to be for something good and part of God's dominion over, over creation. So here I've done the most of the points about why uh, Christian roots were so important for science in, in many different areas, the Bible belief, the, the fall. Uh, but now it's, it's a case of let's bust a few myths. <laughs> now one myth, of course, is that evolution is science. But let's think about what science is. Well, for one thing, the science that really put men on the moon and cures diseases, uh, builds technologies about things that are, occur in the present. Evolution is a belief system about the past. Evolution is really a claim about history, not a claim about science. Also, science is repeatable. That, that's the whole point of science. I mean, you could, I could boil water, it's 100 degrees, well, it's 212 of your degrees, but it's the same thing, 100, 100 of my degrees. Um, and you can go and repeat it. Don't take my word for it. So anything in real science, anyone else can repeat and get the same results. And this is a reflection of, of God upholding things faithfully. And then uh, it's a case of, of observation. Science really is about observation of things, but um, the idea of a, a, no one saw a reptile turn into a bird 100 million years ago. So evolution is a speculation about the past and has no observation. But here's a case, in fact, another myth is that uh, evolution is unbiased. But let's look at that. So here, here's a professor of philosophy who says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It's not that I don't believe in God and hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. It's a very interesting uh, admission there. And let's have a look at another one. Uh, Richard Lewontin, who's a, a geneticist and a Marxist, he says we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of the extravagant promises, in spite of the tolerance for unsubstantiated just-so stories. Why? Because we have a prior commitment to materialism. A commitment that matter is all there is. That's what he's talking about here. For we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. And unfortunately, when you have these, um, uh, these um, Chris, the people like Francis Collins, who is a theistic evolutionist, he is basically accepting the, the um, overall philosophy of people like Richard uh, Lewontin, who doesn't want a creator. Evolution is not a deduction from the evidence, it's a deduction from materialism. And let's uh, look at what Michael Ruse said. He's an anti-creationist. He testified at the Arkansas trial in 80, 81, 82. And he said, evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. Evolution is a religion. That was true of evolution in the beginning and is true of evolution still today, an explicit substitute for Christianity. So when they, um, they didn't ban religion from the public schools, they didn't ban the Christian religion and put the evolutionary religion in its place. 
And here's uh, Richard Dawkins again. Quite interesting to quote this fellow. I've got some uh, make good quotes out of him. He said, although evolution may have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Hence the Darwin bicentennial celebrations by the atheist groups. Evolution is a crutch for the atheistic faith. And, but, but another um, myth is that evolution is essential for science. But here's an evolutionist himself. He said that over the last century, uh, almost all biology has proceeded independent of evolution, except evolutionary biology itself. It's so pretty much a no-brainer. Uh, molecular biology, biochemistry, and physiology have not taken evolution into account at all. So, I mean, the, the propaganda is that you, if evolution is essential for science. We can't possibly have a scientific uh, uh, community without evolution. And yet he says evolution doesn't actually do anything for science. In Australia, we had the same thing. We had um, this uh, university biologist. Um, he was whinging uh, about the uh, not enough evolution in the, uh, in the biology classes because evolution is so essential for biology. And in the same paper, he says, we can't get many students to take evolution because it has no practical value. <laughs> so let, let's conclude this myth of evolution as science. I'd say it's busted, huh? Now, here's another one. Galileo, a science versus religion controversy. That's the myth. And I wrote an article about this because it's the quadricentennial of Galileo turning his telescope to the heavens. So let's look at some of the issues here. Here's an interesting um, case that it was actually science versus science. And Arthur Kirstler, who wasn't a Christian believer, he said there was a powerful body of men whose hostility to Galileo never abated the Aristotelians at the universities. See, that's the point. It wasn't first the church who opposed our Galileo, it was the other scientists. The scientific establishment at the universities were the first enemies of Galileo. So it's definitely science versus science. And he says the academic backwoodsmen have been the curse of genius. It was this threat, not Bishop Danticus or Pope Paul III, that cowed uh, Copernicus into silence. So they're afraid of the scientists, not afraid of the, of the, of the church at first. And also, uh, you look at what um, Cardinal Bellarmine said, the, the, the Pope's right-hand man. He said that if there was real proof the sun was in the center of the universe and the sun doesn't go around the earth, we should have to proceed with great circumspection in explaining passages of Scripture which appear to teach the contrary, but I don't think any proof has been shown to me. Okay, so I mean, this is, a, this is a fairly open-minded attitude. I mean, I wouldn't probably go as far as he would because it's almost like he's accepting science over Scripture, but it shows that the church at the time was fairly open-minded to Galileo, but they were quite right to say that there was no proof at the time. Galileo had not proved his theory, and the main proof he had involved the tides, which we now know to be wrong. So they had every right to say, well, hang on, Galileo, you haven't proved your theory. I mean, now looking back in hindsight, 2020 hindsight's a wonderful thing. Uh, we can say that uh, uh, Galileo was pretty much right, but at the time, let's judge them according to the knowledge they had at their time. 
And then you also find that Galileo was very uh, abrasive in his personality. And uh, uh, this is, again, this uh, historian from Cambridge University saying that academic historians are now convinced that this had much to do with the politics and Pope's ego as it had to do with science. See, what happened is that Galileo had a dialogue uh, to explain the Copernican system with planets moving around the sun and the thing is, he was a very close friend of, of the later Pope Urban VIII. They were very good buddies, mutual admiration society. But what happened is that Galileo put the Pope's arguments into the mouth of Simplicio, the fool. It's not a good way to win friends and influence people doing that. And so the Pope felt very betrayed, and he was basically he was the instigator of the Inquisition against Galileo which most other churchmen did not support. So it's a completely a personality um, uh, um, politics, not science. And it was partly Galileo's own fault. And then I want to just mention that there's no, the science is very simple. And I'll just uh, give you an example of why it is. It's called reference frame. This is a speedometer. Now, hang on. If, if, we're going, uh, if the Earth is going 1,000 miles an hour uh, around the, its axis... Well, how can we have a speedometer which says zero if it's parked? The reason is all motion must be described with a reference to a reference frame. You can choose any reference frame you like. And the speedometer and the speed limit signs on the road, the reference frame is the earth. And it's quite reasonable to talk about 100 um, kilometers an hour, um, which is probably a bit more like your 60 miles per hour, I guess. Um, and that's relevant re- reference frame is the, is the road. It's, it's perfectly accurate. See, in physics, any reference frame is as good as any other. So uh, the whole thing is a storm in the teacup. And this is what Fred Hoyle said. I mean, he was an astronomer, and he said all it is is a mere coordinate transformation, nothing more than that. So you can say that Galileo and his opponents were both right. And when Galileo was asked, does the Earth move, he should have said relative to what? I mean, modern astronomers talk about sunrise and sunset because, again, we're describing motion relative to our Earth. We don't talk about, well, um, the, uh, let's see how the tangent of our line of sight goes below the horizon. Uh, um, but we don't talk about that. We just say the sunrise and sunsets because we're using the Earth as a reference frame. So it's a big, hairy deal. It's not an issue at all. And then you have people saying that Galileo dethroned Earth from its central position. Well, excuse me, he did nothing of the kind because in his own uh, era, the, earth, the center was the worst place to be. It wasn't the best place because you have this idea of, of helping at the center of the earth. That's pretty bad. The earth is a, is a pretty fallen, cursed creation. But they believed in the perfection of heavenly bodies. And see, what, what, they would, uh, what, what Galileo really upset them because when he found sunspots... He showed the sun wasn't a perfect body. So he was undermining that, that particular viewpoint of, of perfection of heavenly bodies. So in the context of his time, uh, in fact, moving the earth away from the center was exalting it, not denigrating it. So once again, proper historical perspective makes a big difference on how um, the um, Galileo affair should be analysed. And most people are looking through it with, with, with 20th, 21st century eyes and just not taking the context of the time. So uh, what can we say about the Galileo controversy of science versus religion? Well, that's busted as well. 
So remember, it's science versus science. Now, what's another myth that comes up is the flat earth myth, that the early church believed in the flat earth. But this was refuted in a book called Inventing the Flat Earth, Columbus and Modern Historians. And uh, see, even people like, like a famous evolutionist, Stephen Jay Gould, gave this a very favorable review because what um, uh, he found was that most Christian scholars, and he looked at uh, lots of Christian writings from the, the, uh, right from the start of the church history up to the Middle Ages, and he found that they all believed that the earth was round, all those who commented on the shape of the earth. He found that a, a few obscure uh, writers, you could count on the fingers of one hand, who talked flat earth belief, but it was just, they were, they were out on the outer. I mean, Lactantius was one, he was regarded as a heretic. A man like Cosmos and Pedicustes, who hardly anyone's heard of. And then you have, the problem is, you have these uh, um, revisionist historians of the 19th century who hated Christianity, who invented this idea that they believed in a flat earth. So they picked these, these fruitcakes, uh, uh, three or four fruitcakes, and ignored the, the huge people like Augustine and the Venerable Bede and the Thomas Aquinas, all these great uh, esteemed scholars who believed the earth was round. And I'm afraid you have Washington Irving to blame because what he did, he claimed that Christopher Columbus was fighting flat earth belief. They thought he would sail off the edge of the world. And he shows this is complete nonsense, utter nonsense. Because what they, the, the, the debate was is, in fact, what is the, the circumference of the earth? Columbus actually underestimated the circumference. And he would have run out of food if it wasn't for the fact that God put some islands between England and America. Basically, the island we're in now. <laughs> so it's a bit of a, a bit of a, bit of a, a fluke there. But Columbus was wrong, and his critics were right. And as I say, the anti-Christian mockery is what uh, really came about. And so we've got to make sure that we're not taught this anti-Christian um, revisionist, which is a complete lie. That Christian scholars, right from the beginning, accepted the roundness of the earth. So I'd say this is yet another myth that's been busted. Now, uh, next uh, talk I'll be talking about where creation science makes sense of the evidence and what creation scientists today are doing to advance real science. But uh, for now, all I'll say is, well, thank you for, for, for listening to me, and God bless, and have a good lunch. And I'll be signing some books, too. So. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to the full series, The Great Reversal. How Christians Will Change the Future. Now available on Canon Plus.